Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another week from Wisconsin. Our full panel is here, but that means our guest panelist, Claire Zaki, our healthcare director here at Citizen Action, is with us, filling in for Rebecca Lynch, who's gone for a little bit, be gone through the year. It's great to have you back, Claire. Good to see you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yes, and we will have some healthcare stuff we are going to talk about later in the podcast, a new study and, and some other stuff healthcare related. But let's complete our panel. Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action, is with us. Robert, good to see you. Good day, everyone. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving holiday week and were able to spend time with family if you were not uh, paralyzed by uh, this, uh, the weather this weekend. <laughs> but uh, hopefully everybody had a great weekend. We're excited to push forward into the new year. Um, this week, in fact, on Saturday, Citizen Action, we're having our annual membership meeting. Uh, and that meeting is occurring uh, in Milwaukee at the Washington Park Senior Center. But we also are having satellite events uh, with each of our regional co-ops. So there's going to be events in Verona, uh, La Crosse, Eau Claire, Wausau, and De Pere. Um, and we'll have uh, contact information on our website if you are interested in attending one of those annual meetings. And we'll be doing both uh, Looking back at uh, what happened this year, we'll be awarding some of our best activists, but also each of the groups will be spending some time uh, planning for 2020, uh, which we all know is a critical year. So with that, hope you can get out. Again, uh, the Senior Center, we're, start, we're opening doors open at noon. We're going to have food before, and the actual meeting will get started at 1. Again, Washington Park Senior Center here in Milwaukee. But let's get rolling. Um, we're going to start by talking about what's what's happened this week in our high schools. Um, I believe there's at least nine schools that had some type of threat or perceived threat or incident uh, within their schools. And, of course, we had um, at least, uh, well, we had the very high-profile Waukesha South and the situation in Oshkosh West, uh, both a shooting, pellet gun shooting, and a stabbing. And, of course, folks, this just opens up the question that we've been grappling with. We had a special session that was gaveled out in, what, a few seconds, maybe a few minutes, uh, around gun safety. Um, Governor Evers, in response to this, of course, you know, says we need action, but is saying he is not going to call another special session on guns, uh, given what happened last time. But... Uh, wants to look for common ground around mental health. But I want to open this up to the panel, uh, both obviously just any response to you know, this coming back to Wisconsin, this coming to Wisconsin big time in our schools um, in this issue, but then also just the political response. Um, uh, Claire, why don't you get us started? Your, your, your thoughts overall and then um, just sort of where, where this, this heads for us. Uh, so some people who know me may know that I spent four years on the school board in uh, Milwaukee, Milwaukee Public Schools. Um, so this was always a really big um, uh, fear is always something that um, sits in the back, I think, of anybody who works um, for a school district, whether um, in a classroom or um, in an administrative capacity. And... 
Uh, and so to, to see these events happening in such rapid succession um, in our state was uh, really scary um, and certainly reignited the debate about how you handle school safety, whether, uh, we, sh whether we should invest in um, you know, more school resource officers or whether we should invest in other types of services. Um, and um, I, I think that's a really challenging debate because I understand the knee-jerk reaction to say the answer is to put more school resource officers in, in schools um, since um, that's sort of what, um, how, that, that's how um, at least the, I think the event in Oshkosh uh, sort of played out was through the use of a school resource officer. Um, but, I, but I also think that there's um, a lot of validity to not giving into that um, that sort of knee-jerk uh, reaction and and remembering that we sh you know should also be investing in other types of um, services for um, students that help us keep from um, getting to situations where where students or folks from the public take these actions to begin with, um, and that I think is sort of the problem that I have with the way that Senator Ron Johnson responded to this incident. Yeah, sure dive right in there on Senator Johnson's <laughs> response. Yeah, so he, um, and he's from Oshkosh, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yes. And so, and he um, put out a statement and um, uh, the statement reads, the incidents in Waukesha South and Oshkosh West remind us that we do not possess the capability to completely prevent somebody from bringing a weapon to a school, which I think is just like a very weird way. It's a straw man, right? Like to, the idea that to start. Any, uh, completely prevent, right? Yeah. Do anything. Um, it, yeah. I mean, you're not even acknowledging how sort of the scary yeah. these things were. Um, and then he says, we should be thankful, however, that larger tragedies um, may well have been averted due to the training and swift, courageous action of students, teachers, school administrators, armed and armed resource officers. And then he says, this confirms that action can and should be taken to mitigate harm and limit casualties when weapons are brought into schools. And I think yes. that a, a better way to think about this would be how can we prevent this from happening in the first place? Like, if the weapon is already arriving in the school, isn't that, it's almost too late from a preventative standpoint, right? Because like, we should be focusing on how do we keep guns out of schools and out of kids' hands um, yes. and out of the hands of dangerous people who would go to a school with a gun in the first place, not think about, well, how do we mitigate, how do we get the fewest number of casualties when this inevitability happens? Because I'm not willing to concede that this is an inevitability. And I, I am just really opposed to his frame here. Robert? Yeah, I'm sort of triggered by the response to this. Um, and so I may be, I may be intemperate. Um, not to Claire's response, but the spot response in the media. Uh, Claire's is very, very appropriate. So first of all, just imagining what it is to be a young person and go through this in at least eight schools and the parents, not a parent, but I'm on call. It's just horrendous, okay? And so we need to think about that, right? And think about, I think Gordon hints, even though I didn't see much in terms of, uh, of a solution offered, at least hit the nail on the head at the emotional part that no, we shouldn't expect this to be normal. We shouldn't accept it. Something along those lines, yep. uh, uh, Gordon yep. had said, uh, that the assembly minority leader. Uh, look, there's there are clearly two sides here in that the Democratic Party in Wisconsin is offering far more constructive than the Republican Party, but neither one is, is, is speaking to the scale of the issue. That's, that's my frustration. 
And so I want to be able to see the shades of gray, applaud people for wanting to do something constructive and useful, but I don't want to pretend that half measures and small little investments here and there is going to fix two big problems. First, our gun culture in this country, which has been enabled by a right-wing judiciary that is, uh, quite frankly, changed to me the Constitution and ever expanded the right to guns to, and this is a critical thing, to say the right of the gun owner trumps the right of everyone else. And fundamentally, in any notion of, 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 of a just society, rights go as far as they impinge upon the rights of others. And so what about the rights of these kids, these parents, the right to life, because we've had mass shootings across the country, to, to have this pure, narrow way is really horrendous. The second thing is, but we need to acknowledge that the gun measures that Democrats in Wisconsin and nationally keep trying to push are certainly worth doing. There's no evidence that they would solve this problem fully, and we need to be clear about that. They are steps in the right direction. It's shocking we can't even get universal background checks, for example, but universal background checks would not necessarily have stopped any of these incidents. We should still do it, but we need to be thinking more broadly, thinking about the courts, thinking about the mental health part. Second thing is, the Republican response to try to defend their absolutist view on the Second Amendment is, do more on mental health. By the way, they say that out of their mouths, out of their actions is, repeal every health care measure that provides any access to mental health. The Affordable Care Act has mm -hmm. mental health parity, not very well enforced, but it's there, it's better than before, and they want to repeal all of that. They don't really want to make mental health accessible. They just want to have a talking point, a way to cover themselves, right? So it's crass politics at its worst. But my concern about the provisions Governor Evers is, is calling attention to, first of all, I'm really concerned about kind of the, uh, the criminal justice approach, oh. which is the school, we can talk about after the break, school resource officers as being front and center. That is old school 1990s Democrat politics. I'm sorry. We need to stop thinking about that way. But the second thing is, I'm triggered, so maybe I'm being harsher than I should be. I know the governor is a great, a very good man who means well in all of this. The second thing is, the mental health investments are not related, the list, the Republicans, to any notion of what the outcome is. How many people get access to mental health? Mental health parity is not well enforced right now, even though it's on the books. The insurance commissioner's office, run by appointees of the governor, takes a very bad, like a complaint-driven approach that doesn't hold insurers accountable. And health care is unaffordable even for the insured. Even when they pay 6000 on average to get coverage, they still go bankrupt when they use it. We're going to talk more about this, a couple of the issues raised, um, when we get, but we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin, uh, but we're going to continue to discuss this critical issue. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're talking about what's been going on in our schools this week. Um, Robert, you brought up just the gun culture. Um, you also brought up a huge critical issue that I, I'm glad and I wanted us to talk more about. And this is this idea that talking about mental health coverage and really that that's become the default now in these things to try to, as Robert said, defend the Second Amendment. Um, we have got to 
talk about that and go there's nothing in here going after them saying like look if they're serious about mental health we shouldn't be talking about the little just the small things that they're saying they're willing to do here in the state we should be going after them for going after the affordable care act for going after mental health parity right going after some of the core foundations that's where this is done it's not done in piddly little badger programs which would give yes. more more families access to mental health services so if they're really serious about this and by the way it is an issue right like it's not a phony thing to say, like, there's mental health issues connected to people who do this. Of course, of course. But this is back to what Claire said. In Ron Johnson's ending part of that statement, he mm-hmm. is full 100% gun culture. The assumption that these weapons and that they have the right to bring these into the schools. And basically, we need to... He talks about mitigating them, as you said, when the weapons are brought in, because there is an assumption this is going to continue. And that is the ultimate, like, hollow, hollowness of his position. Like, nothing I can do, this is going to continue, oh. and I take it as they have a right to do it. And a little bit, before we go to Claire, a little bit of the subtext is a little bit of, like, the Hollywood movie, Clint Eastwood or John Wayne will be there to take care of the that, bad guys when they come in with the guns. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I actually don't have much to add. I totally yeah. I, I agree with you, and um, I appreciate you coming back to coming back to that point. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really disgusting to me, um, and and I think Robert said it best that you. Um, but this is this is clearly indicative of a culture that um, values. Um, you know, the supposed right of somebody to hold, um, you know, any type of weapon they want anywhere they want over the right of um, people, other people to live in safety. Children, too, right? Like kids. Children. And children. Yeah, to be honest, the founders never anticipated that we would take these rights and make them absolute without regard to other rights. Well. Which is what right wing judges are done with the Second Amendment. Back to the Johnson comment. Then the fact that this all starts off with the straw man, the idea that we can't completely prevent someone. So the notion that we can't like 100% completely prevent means we can't do anything. And then ending with, and by the way, and then I also assume that like people have a right to continue to bring these guns into the schools, right? Like, which is, this is like one of the worst statements, the fact that it, also said very little about the families and the kids. Oh my the gosh. kids who ran and had to go hide yeah. in one of the uh, in in the a mosque across the street, if I'm correct, where one of the children, whose uh, 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 I think father uh, was was a part of the church or the mosque and allowed them in, like she had the access code to get in. There's now video out of these kids terrified coming into this uh into this church across this mosque across the street it's like um none of that like is reflected in in johnson's statements um one more thing before i go back to you both on on and it's on one of robert's comments um it's around this police response and you know evers this idea that we need more police in schools and you calling the 1990s approach it is a hundred percent the wrong approach and where we need to go um it 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 does not lead to, to success and we are there's a lot of good work that people have been doing and trying to break this sort of school to prison pipeline and we have good data that shows if you put children in contact with police they it tends to lead to a criminal justice approach as opposed to any kind of medical health approach uh, that we ought to be doing Claire Oh, yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, I think that our partners lit um, in Milwaukee here have been sort of leading this effort um, in this part of the state. Um, so I want to lift up their work on that. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, there's study after study that shows 
that, um, you know, SROs in schools turn into basically mini administrators because, of course, our schools are underfunded. And so um, they get relied upon by the actual school administrators and things that would otherwise be, you know, just detention or suspension get turned into sort of tickets and jail time and things escalate. And um, I think I think. I want to acknowledge that the counterpoint to that is probably people who would say, well, you know, you know, better that negative than the, you know, the ultimate negative of, um, you know, a, a tragedy in a school shooting that could be prevented by an SRO. Um, but again, I, I want to just, I want to acknowledge that I understand that that argument is out there. Um, I, I, I think we all here on this panel, though, agree that you know we should not concede that to be an, an inevitability. We should like these two things are not mutually exclusive, right? Like, like we can try to do our best to prevent um, these situations and de-escalate these situations if they do occur, um, while still fighting against the school to prison pipeline that is perpetuated um, by this outdated uh, model. Robert, I wanted to give you the last thoughts on this before we move on. Well, he needs. The governor Evers needs to stop defaulting to kind of a, it's really a Clinton era kind of response. That's why I call it harkening back to the 1990s. And it doesn't show, I assume he actually knows of this, but just was speaking right off the cuff, uh, all the thought that Claire just referenced about the problems and the downsides of making everything a police issue and what that does to, to kids. Uh, but, and then, then the, they, they, I, I won't go further. I'll just say that. Uh, Claire said it very well. But let me just add on mental health. Look, the best way to have access to mental health would be Medicare for all. And everyone needs to know that even though it's going to be very hard to get to it, that needs to be the gold standard. I'm not saying it could be done the first 100 days of new administration. But if we don't have an understanding that insurance companies do not have an interest in providing access to mental health, they have an interest in lowering their own costs to raise their profits and we don't pay mental health providers enough in order to create enough mental health providers, even though we, we recognize that mental illness and physical illness are both kind, a kind of illness that needs treatment. We don't do it because it's not in the interest of insurance companies. And it's also not as profitable for big health systems that want to drive us all to the expensive medical care, which I know we're going to talk about soon. So we need to understand that this is related to health reform. The Republicans, Voss says he wants to do more in mental health uh, treatment. Tell me his record anywhere on guaranteeing access to mental health at all, because you, you have so many possible kids that could have issues in adolescence. You need universal access. I think it's the number I've heard is that two-thirds of, of shooters in schools do not have any diagnosed mental health condition because they're not being diagnosed because they're not being seen, okay? Mm-hmm. So um, appreciate those great conversation, but we have to move on. We have a lot of things to talk about. Um, the next topic, and Robert referenced it, is um, the, a new study that came out. came out yesterday, I believe. And there's a couple of interesting um, findings, and we'll dive into it. Uh, one is that if every primary care physician in Wisconsin provided the same quality of care, um, that the cost would go down about 30%. So uh, that's one key finding. The other uh, key finding that's of interest is that it found that it estimated that 35% of physicians provided below average care, and an estimated 27 provided care that was more costly than the average for counterparts. So um, I look forward to hearing both of your thoughts on this. We, we, we will go into the next uh, segment on this, but 
this shows continues to show that we know there is a lot of inefficiencies in the way we provide <laughs> health care in this uh, current system, Robert. Look, this is what I said about understanding that Medicare for all has to be the ultimate goal because we, the public, have to decide what the price of health care needs to be reasonably in order to guarantee health care is a right. As long as you have commodified it and put drug companies, big hospitals that act like for-profits, insurance companies, medical device manufacturers in charge, they will look for the maximum profit. It's Wall Street values, and that's what's going on here. So the care is highly inefficient. We know that 30% of medical spending in the United States is waste, literally. And so that's a huge amount of money that would do it. That would do it. That would go a long way towards getting to cutting down healthcare costs, which are double per capita what any other country is in the in the world, while not covering everyone like the other advanced uh, industrial countries in the world. And so, it is just more evidence. It's waste and it's profit seeking. And so some of the waste is simply that what they did is they studied various chronic diseases where there are very clear treatment regimens, okay? You know what to do. This is not some sort of, you know, doctor's TV show case where, gosh, what, you know, house, right? Josh, what is it? We can't, it's not that, okay? This is literally, this is what you do with someone with this stage of diabetes, and, the, and here's the care they need, the coordination, the fault they need, and a third of doctors aren't doing it, and it's both costing lives and costing money. That's the problem with our system, and if I have to say this to Democrats, if you're not willing to set the price for health care, which every other advanced country does, you have to set the price at a reasonable level, then you will have low-quality care and you will have a, a cost that is increasingly unaffordable for, for individuals and businesses and everyone else in our society. Claire, final thoughts before we go to break. We'll talk more, we'll talk more about this after the break, but I just wanted to give you a chance to make some comments. Yeah, so um, I... I, I just want to echo that I think this is astound it's astounding that the study found that fully a third of our country's healthcare spending could be considered waste. Um, that is that is absolutely astounding and in its own indicative of, of how completely uh, corrupt and not driven by patient success our healthcare system is. And I have uh, I have more thoughts, but I'll I'll hold them to after the break. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. Again, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We're talking about a new study this week that found significant waste within the healthcare system. Uh, Claire, you were uh, about to make some more comments before we had to go to break. Yeah, so I think that this is um, this is really interesting because it shows, and I agree with everything Robert said, right, about Medicare for All and the gold standard, and that's what we need to be working towards. Um, and I wanted to add that I think this also shows that the healthcare system is... Um, not a system that functions um, based on sort of traditional uh, economic theory and models um, right. because in order for a market to, to function in sort of this traditional market-driven way, um, there needs to be some level of uh, transparency in the market. Um, the people can understand um, what they are consuming and can compare different options. Um, and part of that is uh, being able to understand not only the services that they're receiving, but the quality of those services. And we have a system, a healthcare system in the United States, 
where um, it is not possible to compare apples to apples between plans always because um, there are so many different components of a plan. Maybe you can compare apples to apples, a few different components of it of a plan. Um, and, uh, and most people, if you get your health insurance through an employer, have no option of comparing at all. And you're the only people who are comparing are the people who are employed by your company to choose whatever health care plan um, the, their employees are going to receive. Um, and then, even then, the choice is not based on what is best for the employees very often. It's based on how expensive the plans are. And so they have to choose, well, what are we going to cut this year? Or what are what are the trade-offs that we're going to make this year, right? Um, every employer with employer employee-sponsored um, healthcare goes through this conversation on an annual basis. Um, and, and this study sort of backs that up. It says that, um, that there is no correlation between cost of services and the quality of services received, right? So not only are plans terrible, but then you, but then you get into the, like into an actual doctor's room and which is maybe chosen by your plan, maybe not. Maybe you are they, maybe there's enough transparency that you can figure out what is in your network, maybe not. Maybe you had a surprise medical bill, maybe you don't. But let's say you, you manage to figure out, you understand your plan, you manage to figure out what doctor is in network and you get into that doctor's room. You still have no idea if the quality of the service that you're gonna receive is, is actually worth the money that you are spending. Um, and it is just that at every level of every transaction in our American healthcare system, it, it is driven by a complete lack of transparency and a profit motive and care for everybody except the patient. Robert, you get the last thoughts on the study. So just so people know, it's from the Greater Milwaukee Business Foundation on Health, which we have experience looking at. They do good research. They've done very good research on high costs before. But just so folks know, progressives like to know sources, this is, they're funded by businesses. They're concerned about high health care costs. Okay, so the businesses themselves aren't fighting for anything with Medicare for all, but because they are paying to the nose an average of $20,000 per person, the employee spends on average 6000 per person, right? And worse if you have any health conditions whatsoever. So they have, a, they have an interest, but they haven't aligned exactly around uh, fundamental reform of the healthcare system that is actually needed. I mean, the people who fund them, not the researchers. Uh, the other thing to bear in mind is uh, this number, about 30% waste, it's not just from this study. Right. This is the, the, the most unassailable national research for decades shows that about our healthcare system. So that their, fi their finding is, is actually, has been reinforced over and over again by the best data there is out there, the Dartmouth Atlas Project being one of the major ones. If you want to Google it and read all of the uh, information. Uh, the thing to understand is, if you think about Medicare for All, right, or Medicare for America, which is a very robust public option open to everyone, uh, it's a bill in Congress, and uh, with Medicare for, that literally Medicare for America says that all, any employer can opt into Medicare, an improved Medicare system without the gaps, for 8% of payroll. Well, 8% of payroll is a lot less than $20,000 per individual if you think about per capita income. So this would be a boon to business, and it would eliminate co-pays and deductibles pretty much and prevent all of the surprise medical bills, et cetera, because Medicare has the broadest network, unlike private health insurance. With that, we are going to briefly switch topics. We're, we don't have a ton of time to dive into this, but we do want to talk about the Trump administration's proposal around food stamps. Claire, I know you have some strong feelings about this, but look, this proposal is going to push uh, three quarters of a million people 
uh, likely off of food stamps. Uh, it just seems like a terrible idea. Claire? Uh, yeah, I am, I'm excited to talk about this. I know I don't have a lot of time, right. so I will keep my comments relatively brief. But I, it's really important. It's tied to other big changes in the SNAP, or um, more commonly called food stamp benefits, that haven't been getting a lot of attention that I want to raise. Um, and it's also kind of complicated because the federal rulemaking process is, is really complicated. Um, and so people may not understand exactly what's happening. Um, so I think it's worth a little bit of elucidating. Uh, so right now, um, the um, federal government um, says that if you are a state that does not have a waiver um, for um, the work requirements for um, the SNAP program, um, that able-bodied, so-called able-bodied adults without children um, cannot receive food stamps for more than three months during a 36-month period without working or participating in a work program. Um, however, states can grant waivers to areas that have sort of insufficient jobs for the number of folks in that area um, or a 24-month average of uh, unemployment rate that's at least 20% above the um, national average. But this rule says that you would have to have a 24-month average unemployment rate that is not only 20% above the national average, but also at least 6%, which sounds like a small change. Um, but that's a new floor for um, the um, eligibility requirement to get a waiver. Um, and that is what's triggering this um, that's what's triggering this change that would kick um, about 700,000 uh, people off of, um, off of uh, food stamps. And um, it's also worth noting that um, prior to this, states could say um, what sort of um, could identify their own area that they, that they are applying for um, the waiver for. But now they have to go by the um, Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics standard for what an area is. And so those are often bigger area, like bigger metropolitan areas that include both um, lower income, higher poverty areas, and wealthier, more affluent areas. So, um, so I read a New York Times article where they mention um, Detroit as an example of this, where you have like a really uh, a concentration of, of high poverty, uh, very low income individuals in the city. But then by the Bureau of Labor Statistics standard of what the metro area is, it also includes these very, very wealthy point, this, um, yeah. around the outside, right? And so by this new definition, it's very likely that you couldn't get a waiver for the people who live in this high poverty area right. because of this. And, and like that could very well be the case for a place like Milwaukee because BLS often counts like Milwaukee, Waukesha, and West Dallas oh, as yeah. one employment area. And certainly we know that like that um, the suburban areas of Waukesha are dramatically different um, than like many neighborhoods in the city of Milwaukee or even West Dallas. And the Trump administration knows this. They're, what you just explained, while it can be very confusing, they're relying on that confusion to make it seem like it's just a technical change when they know exactly what was going to happen. People were aware that this was in the pipeline, tried to get them to stop and not do this. And they're going forward with this anyways. And, you know, so you can have people who, you know, can't really hold jobs. Maybe they're, work they can, they're working 18 hours. That's not going to cut it. They're going to be caught from food stamps. This is um, um, just a terrible idea because, by the way, this is like the worst way to actually try to help these folks. You know, so unbelievable. Yeah. And it's going to impact right people who have very, very modest, low-income 
right uh, means. So, yeah, I think. And okay, so I'm sorry. So I, I wanted to flag two other things that are coming down the pipeline with when it comes to food stamp um, food stamp benefits in the SNAP program. Two more rules coming out of the the federal government um, that Trump has proposed that are very likely to come up before the presidential election. Um, and so one of them is a rule that would prevent. Um, uh, households or people with incomes of up to 200% of the federal poverty level. Um, so uh, households that have more than $2,250,000 in assets or 3500 for households um, with a disabled adult from receiving food stamps. So that change, so this first change that we talked about um, affects uh, about 700,000 people. Um, this other change would affect nearly 3 million people, and nearly 1 million children could lose eligibility for free or reduced price meals. Right, so so the rule that um, that the that will go into effect in April 2020 that we discussed earlier um, affects largely able-bodied, childless adults. So this is a change that would actually affect children, and there's. Um, and then just in general, Trump is proposing cutting $4.5 billion from the, um, this program over five years and adjusting some eligibility formulas, which could affect um, one in five families. Um, so so I just because this rule passed, I don't want people to say we don't have to keep paying attention um, to this issue um, because dramatically more um, greater number of, of folks are going to be affected. Look, yet another reason why this election next year is super important. This stuff, and here, this stuff, here. This stuff happens often undercover. Most people are never going to hear about this except for the yeah. folks who show up and find out that they've been cut uh, yeah. when it happens. Yeah, literally every state except Delaware has used a waiver for the SNAP program in the past 23 years. So 49 states in the past two decades have, have used these waivers. They're, they're popular. States yeah. want to use and them. And I'll just say at the same time, Trump is shoveling money to agribusiness. And in fact, this violates the deal made in the Congress. But in addition, he is apparently sending more to southern agribusiness than the actual affected uh, Midwestern farmers out of the farm bill. Mm -hmm. With that, we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by a co-op member and Eau Claire Council member Kate Beacon to talk about their climate plan that they've been working on and some exciting news that came out this week related to their climate plan. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. So we have been spending a lot of time on the podcast talking about climate, uh, the Green New Deal, and the idea that we need to be doing visionary big things in order to deal with the, the climate catastrophe that's headed our way and do it in a way that generates an economy that creates equity and, and real prosperity and opportunity for people if we're going to massively restructure the economy. And this week we have a special guest to talk about the incredibly exciting planning and work that's going on in the city of Eau Claire around their development of a climate plan. We are joined today by Kate Beaton. She is the, an Eau Claire City Council member. Kate, we're really glad you could take the time to join us and talk more about what you're all doing in Eau Claire. Yes, thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit first, uh, Eau Claire has a, uh, a planning process, right, around trying to uh, meet, I believe it is, the Paris Climate Accords. Is that is that correct? Yes, exactly. Um, it all started in 2017 when um, the president made his first announcement that he'd be pulling out our country out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, 
as a young person um, with a lot of time left on this earth. Um, that was something that was really upsetting to me. Um, and I decided that uh, I had to use the, the little piece of power that I had in little Eau Claire, Wisconsin to um, you know, do whatever I could to for the clean energy movement. If our if our federal government government wasn't going to be doing it, and at the time our state government wasn't doing it, um, the best that we could do was at the local level. Um, and so, we, the city council, um, passed a resolution committing to the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, and that jump started um, this whole uh, sort of local movement to really up our game to. Um, you know, usher in the clean energy movement into our city. So um, it led to our sustainability committee making a recommendation to the city council to make a goal of 100% clean energy by 2050. Um, and uh, included in that resolution was a mandate for um, a robust planning process. And so we've been spending the last year um, uh, with, you know, dozens of community members from all sectors, from um, industrial sectors to nonprofits that are advocating for the environment and also advocating for, um, you know, underserved populations in our community, um, you know, to sectors including, you know, governments and, and other businesses. And so we actually, um, just a, a, a week or two ago, just uh, released our first draft of our Renewable Energy Action Plan, the accumulation of a year's work of planning. Um, and that plan is going to be, that draft is going to be approved, uh, hopefully, I'm sure it will be, uh, in in January. So that's that, that plan is, you know, 70 pages and, and full of local policies that are, uh, that range from low-hanging fruit, easy policies that we can do now to, um, you know, 30 years of, of work, uh, really, um, some big, big policy, like structural policy change. So well, we're really excited about that. Well, congratulations. It's, it's huge. And I love the way you talked about this, that like, there are things we can do locally that can make a difference, particularly if it's not happening at the federal or state level. And um, and and this is really super important in terms of visioning and getting people to start to comprehend and wrap our heads around not only the scope of what we face, but what are some real practical things we can do. Um, tell us a little bit more about one of the more exciting things that's been getting press about your desire to try to make the city 100%, have 100% electric vehicles, both by first getting the public infrastructure committed to that through the city, but then also thinking about how you start to do that to move uh, private uh, uh, entities to actually create markets, but also set up and prepare for those markets so you could actually be 100% electric. Tell our listeners more. It's very, very exciting. Yeah, so this uh, this goal of 100% electric vehicles um, really has two, you really put it well, it has two um, sub-goals, um, and they're, we're tackling them entirely differently. Um, the first uh, is the electrification of our city fleets, including our city buses, our police vehicles, the snow plows even someday, um, and what we're doing is um, is just literally finding dollars in our 
extremely tight city budget. Um, local communities have um, have budget crises happening right now. Um, but we are, for the first time ever, the city of Eau Claire is investing capital dollars into clean energy infrastructure and um, and, and applying for relevant grants um, and finding new and creative revenue sources to be electrifying our fleet. Um, that's um, you know, a, a simple a simple goal. Um, it just takes a lot of money, um, and so we're going to be investing for the next thirty years to make that happen. Um, of course, there are uh, electric buses that we see in communities, and, and Eau Claire has a few hybrid buses as well. Um, so, and, and and electric vehicles, kind of, so like the police fleet, are are easy to to see as a reality. Um, I sometimes think about, uh, you know, what it would be like to have electric snow plows or some of the larger vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it really reminds me that uh, our uh, that technology is advancing and that we have to really put faith in the advancements of technology to help us get to those more, um, those more challenging goals. Um, in terms of the, the private electrification of, of cars in our city, um, the, the city council wants to be really clear that we're not um, instituting policies to require, to, to force anybody to do anything. Um, we, what we're doing, we, what we see as our responsibility as a city is to um, create policies and to create infrastructure that makes it easy um, to make decisions um, to purchase electric vehicles. Um, we want to be investing city dollars into um, charging stations, and and start creating policies that eventually, um, you, you know, facilitate charging stations in the private sector. Um, Eau Claire has done a lot with a little by um, by creating partnerships in the private sector, and so I imagine somewhere down the line, um, our city will be working with, um, you know. Uh, the, the auto industry, the, the local auto industry, um, and an auto sales to help um, facilitate, you know, a, a greater market for electric vehicles as well. So, Ro- um, Robert, I know you had a quick question. Well, first, Kate, this is great work. This is the kind of leadership we need to take on this crisis. As you know, this is the biggest thing facing humanity, literally, and and we all know how catastrophic a, a climate you know, genocide, that's what it will amount to, will be and how unequal it will be. But we also know, and this is what's great about the way you've talked about it, Katie, and the way it's coming out of Eau Claire, that doing so also has huge amounts of positive benefit. So it's not because people just get scared with only the doomsday scenarios. These are real doomsday scenarios, not made up. Uh, but if you talk about, gee, we can also improve the, the, the quality of life, we can actually increase economic opportunity by so doing, then it's great. And the other thing I want to ask you about, though, and this is not present yet at the state level, but it's present in communities like the Dane County area, like Eau Claire, is if you're going to, you actually, this is, this, this is high accountability here. You absolutely have to reduce greenhouse gases to have a chance of keeping printing catastrophic climate change by 45% by 2030, and by at least 80% by 2050, preferably zero by 2050. And the only way to do that is to know the baseline of what greenhouse emissions are and to track all of the reforms as to how much you're reducing it, right? Not just because it's possible to have all sorts of good-sounding reforms that actually don't even dramatically reduce it. And if we don't do it, then there are consequences. So we really have to hold ourselves accountable. So 
I, I have a sense in Eau Claire that you've developed a baseline, you have an idea, you have to hold yourselves accountable to actually achieving the greenhouse emissions over time. Is that correct? Yes, that is that is correct. Um, that was a, um, a a big feat, I would say. Um, I work with communities in my day job uh, with Wisconsin conservation voters who are looking to do this, and and actually establishing that baseline is the most challenging part for a lot of communities. It's expensive and takes a lot of staff time, but is one hundred percent essential in order to help hold ourselves accountable and to really um, also be able to you know celebrate the the wins and know kind of how far we've gotten uh, since creating these goals. So. So one of the things that I think has been exciting where you started this was that any we can do this in all of our locations. What would you say to somebody who's listening? Maybe they're a local alder or uh, sit on a county board uh, that they ought to do this too, I assume, would be your, your charge to them. Yes. Um, and like I said, we're working with communities across the state to do this. And so anybody out there who's uh, thinking about doing this as well, uh, you're not alone and we want to help you. Um, I would say that it's um, at this point in time with climate change, um, you know, costing our communities money right now and costing a lot of hardship, it's our responsibility as local elders and local leaders to look at what more we can be doing to do our part to address climate change. Um, it's essential to um, set goals and um, work with our community to plan uh, ways to achieve those goals. Um, we are setting the visions for the local clean energy movement and, um, and then putting uh, a lot of faith in ourselves and our community, but also technology to help us um, achieve those goals. It can be a daunting task. I know I know that, uh, a daunting goal, but um, it's well worth it, and it's really um, transformed the way that our community sees clean energy and sees our part in the clean energy movement. So well, I would say go for it. Well, we want to encourage our listeners to go for it, too, and we want to thank you, uh, Kate, for joining us and for leading in your community. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And with that, we have to wrap up this show. We want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes this happen every week. And, of course, we want to thank council member Kate Beaton for joining us from Eau Claire. And with that, we'll see you all next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.